to another very I keep saying this about all my episodes but all my episodes are very special but I've really been looking forward to this one um because it's actually the second week running that I've been able to bring a guest on who who comes under the umbrella of both of my shows so this is another dead men talk meets once upon a turnbuckle cue cheesy intro which I probably don't have which I should be um but for this one I welcome um sports writer and author of the upcoming book which is already on my my reading list even though it's not yet been released uh, but the upcoming book uh, dynamite and davy the explosive lives of the british bulldogs i welcome stephen bell how are you mate i'm good chris yeah thank you actually uh day two of covid actually so um i'm uh i'm, oh, no. I'm faring up quite well yeah um, oh wow well thank you for for coming so, yeah, on no, yeah. no, no, never, never been a better time really because obviously <laughs> completely completely isolated but um oh. now obviously I'm, I'm jammed up as much as I can be yeah uh, um yeah it's it hasn't affected me it was Sunday night I, I mean I, I'm a bit of a square I go to bed at half nine anyway and um you're a parent I, by any chance about, about seven o'clock I just started feeling completely exhausted like completely yeah. wiped out I thought that's what a day with me two full day with my two-year-old on a Sunday's done to me and yeah, yeah, um yeah. and then so I did me test on Monday morning before going into the office and sure enough this little second oh. line ah, that explains that then so yeah uh, day two but yeah all good no no real no real heartache it's there's so much of it there's so many people I know um either you know kids or parents at my kids schools neighbors friends um they just out of nowhere they they they're testing positive for it obviously it is yeah really I think it was I think but... it, Bruno 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 had had a cough for a few days I mm. think he must have brought it in from play school or whatever so ah. yeah you know, that end of the world well thank you get jobs everybody get jobs it's not it's not it <laughs> <laughs> absolutely but no thank you thank you for for coming on um I I was really really excited um when I got the opportunity to bring you on mainly because obviously the book that we'll be talking about um, features very highly in my world as well. Um, obviously, the writing world and the wrestling world, and you, you don't get as a Brit, you don't get much more important than than talking about the British Bulldogs, really. Um, we'll we'll get to that. What what I um, what I'd probably do to begin with, just kind of give a little bit more of an idea of your background in terms of your your writing. Um, so, when did you decide, or when did you happen about? becoming a writer was it something that you decided on early on or something that just really happened it was it were a bit of a sort of a pipe dream what to one day write a book you know i'm a i'm an engineer by trade um always enjoyed spinning a yarn telling a story um did really got a stars in english at school you know and it was just nothing and like journalism you're a bit young actor at 16 to make these life changes decisions looking back but sort of sports journalism is probably the direction i should have gone in hindsight but you're a bit young for all that making them sort of decisions so that was um, exactly what i left school saying i was going to be just to yeah well it, it, never, it just never appeared on my radar and looking back i mean yeah. god i've done for me for one um, for an english combined with an art project <laughs> Uh, I, I did a um, a program like a little magazine for the 2002 World Cup. That's what that's what you're okay. And you know, um, got A stars for it and everything like that. And yet, for some reason, nobody or myself never sort of went. Have you ever thought about sports journalism? It just never appeared on my radar. Yeah. And then in my sort of mid twenties, I was like, oh, Miss Bolt, there, I really should have done that. Um, so. I really kept up to speed with, I read loads of sports books, kept up to date with my sort of sports journalism and um, listened to talk sport all day, that kind of stuff. You know yeah. what I mean? I, I, and all the time I was thinking, yeah, I think I could do that. I think I could do that. You know, I've got friends who are actual sportsmen, friends who are in bands. None of them things did I ever think, yeah, I could do that. Because I know I couldn't, you know, but but sports writing, I'm writing in general, I think I thought I could do that if I really wanted to, if I had the time or the inclination or the right opportunity, the right story. And then I went to Brazil in 2014 for the World Cup and mm -hmm. um, I stayed there for six weeks. England running there for two weeks, but, you know, that's another story. Um, <laughs> that's uh, your fault. So they, and, you know, we just sort of, me and two friends, sort of went on this little adventure and I'd kind of gone thinking, this might be it. I might come back with, um, you know, something to write about never really came off that I, I thought about it after that uh, but what I did come back with was this love of Brazilian football love of Brazilian people love of Brazil itself and then mm -hmm. 
two years later, um, I don't know if you know of it, but the, the Brazilian football team, Chapecoense, had a plane crash in which um, almost all the squad and all the... Yeah. Boat, everybody died, 70, 70, 71 out of the 77 people on board died. Um, I got completely obsessed with the story. And um, I'd got a friend in Brazil who uh, sort of really knew the uh, ins and outs of Brazilian football intimately, and I'd kept in touch with him. So I, I was getting him to send me translated news stories, translated articles, or you know, um, news programs. He were even putting uh, subtitle English subtitles on them for me. So, that, and I accidentally, over the course of months, became a little bit of an expert on the subject, and um, it had completely disappeared off our news stream. You know, Brexit were going on at the time. Donald Trump were in jail. You know, all this were going off. You know, but oh, nobody on on this little island seemed to care one jot about this amazing story. Because by then I'd gone back and discovered that the the club of Chapecoense had, you know, almost gone out of business ten years earlier. They were playing on dusty pitches. They were um, in their equivalent, the Brazilian Football League pyramid equivalent of non-league, okay. and they went on this just completely amazing Roy the Rovers style journey over 10 years to right to the top. They were in on their way to the final of the South American version of the Europa League when the plane crashed and all these heroic football players who'd been on that journey for 10 years, almost all of them perished. And um, I became completely obsessed with that story. And I just thought to myself one day, I'll never forget where I was. I thought to myself one day, if I don't do it about this, I'll never do it. Mm. So I had no idea how to do it really, but I set about doing it, um, got halfway through and luckily Pitch Publishing, a brilliant um, independent UK publisher, the UK's largest sports book publisher, um, took it on, took a punt on me. I'll, I'll always be grateful for that. They took a punt on the story, took a punt on me. And um, yeah, it came off. It was really well received. Um, and was, that, was, so, was, that your, was that your first thing that you yeah. did? Had you been, that, was, that was the first writing project yeah, yeah pro 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 properly yeah um, <laughs> wow it was so well received it did really well um and then i sort of became uh, i started writing articles for these football times a good um, online football magazine and um pitch publishing told me you know feel free to to do another so there was a um i'm from i live in usfield now and there was a local hero who um was an absolute bona fide war hero of World War One. Um, you know the film Axel Ridge. Well, he was he he was the UK version of Axel Ridge. You know he, he completely rescued numerous several people's lives just by running into the line of fire because he was a rugby player okay. uh, with this unbelievable strength and just running into the line of fire, running back, running into the line of fire, running back. He was classed as the world's greatest rugby player at the time. Went to war came back, got told that he should um, never do any sporting activity again, such for the severity of his um, war injuries. He'd been blown up twice and all. It's an amazing story. Uh, but he got bored, sat at home, went back into rugby league, had a second sort of Hall of Fame rugby career, won everything all over again. And even when that were over, that weren't enough for him. So he went into professional wrestling in 1930. Okay. And became became the UK's first ever professional wrestling world champion, heavyweight world champion. Right. Uh, unbelievable story, L lived just around the corner from me. So I knew the story quite well, I knew of him quite well. And uh, I thought, right, this is it. I've got a sports book publisher telling me that they want me to write something. I've got this story, I can make, can bring this guy's story back to life. Mm. Um, that went better than I could have possibly ever dreamed. The, um, it, the a lot of the national newspapers, the Mirror Group of newspapers, used it um, as their front page story for Remembrance Day. Um, okay. For Remembrance Day story, once they got wind of it, um, that so, so this book would it would just coming up market at the time. And so yeah, out of nowhere, I sort of ended up with the second book, and I was the name were on front page of a national paper, and it all just felt. <laughs> Unbelievably surreal, based on the fact that I'd just only two years ago decided to sort of give it a bit of a punt. Wow. Uh, and so, yeah, that's when I sort of felt, I think I think there were a sense of um, responsibility, I think, to, to keep going. I thought I've got, I've managed to, a lot of it look more than, more than skill, I think. I mean, I've negotiated through it really well and worked really hard at it, but the opportunity sort of fell into my lap, I think, um, having the right story at the right time that the publisher wanted. Um, but I felt a responsibility to sort of 
keep that going. I thought a lot of people would kill for this opportunity, you know, yeah. um, a book publisher that's willing to, willing to support them. And, and you know, a lot of stories start uh, coming, to, coming to mind about what I might want to do next. Cool. Uh, so, yeah, that leads us to the that's, third book. That, okay, so I, I, I didn't really... I almost didn't want to research your background to death or what I could see because I, I like it to be really, you know, organic when I talk to people, find out for myself. I didn't expect that, you know, right. the fact that, you know, you're, you, you, this is very inspirational to me as a writer and to anyone else out there who is either thinking of being a writer or already is and probably having the same, same struggles I do, you know, almost like imposter syndrome. I shouldn't be here. Yes. You know, I, I shouldn't I be doing You've just proven there. You just you, a kernel of an idea came to you. You went with it. It worked. You were given the opportunity to do it again. It worked. You know. You proved that this writing industry is it is a tough nut to crack. But if you've got the right story, um, you know, are these stories that you've done are they they ones that have been covered before or were they largely unknown or you well, know, ignored? Well, well, I kind of. I don't want to use the word rushed, but that's the only word that springs to mind at the minute. Um, Jabba Coenty one, because I just thought it was such an amazing story. Mm, I'd yeah. got it. There almost a bit of paranoia in my brain once I'd uh, sacrificed all this time and effort. You know, it weren't just the actual writing of that book at that point. I wanted to make sure that I was actually quite good. So mm. I was doing, I did a couple of the old masterclass classes on writing and stuff like that and journalism classes to make sure I was doing the right research. I put an awful lot of time and energy yeah. into that. Um, but at the same time, I were like, I can see me getting to a point where I've sacrificed all this time and energy, and uh, all of a sudden it'll be, oh, there's this book out now mm. by some experienced sports journalist, yeah. going to completely blow mine out of water, and I'm not going to get a look in. The market's already going to be flooded, and um, so there were an element of uh, a little bit of rushing. Like I wanted to get it done, I wanted to get it there, um, I wanted so my name to be linked to that I'd, I'd put so much uh i felt so emotionally involved um yeah. with that story by the time i'd finished because it was such an heart-wrenching story yeah uh, that i just saw how I, I did want my name to be sort of linked to it in that sports journalism world yeah. uh, and so it hadn't been covered at the time by the time i was just about to submit i remember a, a documentary appeared on netflix about it um which is very good um, and then there's been there's been another documentary since, and there's been books in other languages, but I think my, mine's still, to my knowledge, mine's still the only English English language awesome. one. So it was it was unique at the time. I knew the Douglas Clark book had never been done. Douglas Clark's story was um, his his last surviving immediate relative, uh, where his niece, she's the curator of all his um, all his memorabilia and all his okay. belongings. And, uh, she actually knows so much of it that she donated all of it to the Imperial War Museum. He's regarded as such a war hero that they were so grateful to take it. So he's actually got his own um, shrine, for want of a better word, at wow. uh, the Manchester Imperial War Museum. Oh, wow. um, but the uh, the actual collection of his stuff is held in the archives at the London one. So I went down to London and got out all his archives and studied everything that were in there about him and all. He, he actually kept war diaries. He, there's, there's not many of the um, war heroes from World War One that kept as thorough um, diaries as he did. And I went through them page by page, making notes and taking pictures. And uh, it gave it this sort of unique feel. I knew it had never been done, that one. And um, I mean, and that's just, why that one went so well. As a wrestling fan, I'm, I, and we'll get to this as well, is that the British wrestling scene isn't something that I... I knew of when I was growing up, when I discovered wrestling, it wasn't the British side. So I, I what you've told me now about him is the first that I've heard. You know, I, I never really yep. knew his significance to the wrestling world. So, you know, already I want to pick that up and read more, you yep. know, just knowing what this guy did. I mean, it's not just um, the wrestling either. I mean, he had a he had a story and a half to tell before. And there's a direct link to the Bulldogs then, because that's when it tied into, uh, I was such a big fan. I know we're going to go into this, but I was such a big yeah. fan, sort of early 90s, um, David Boy's sort of crucially around the British Bulldog, obviously um, the Bret Hart Hulk Hogan sort of time. I was such a big, massive fan of that era as a seven, eight, nine-year-old kid. Um, that when I got to 16, 17, I, my fandom had come back through the Attitude Era. And so I started reading books and I were obsessed with um, 
I wanted to know that a little bit more. I wanted to know a bit more about the behind the scenes type stuff. Mm -hmm. So I read Boldy's book. And then yeah. a few years later, when Bret Hart's book came out, I read Bret Hart's book. And that's what really started to um, add to this um, sort of fabled story that would become British Bulldogs. By that point, I was that bit older. I knew that they were only from a mining town just like mine. Um, 45 minutes drive away, I started to become aware that even though there were these larger-than-life characters, I'd become aware of the Dynamite Kid as well by then, even though there were these larger-than-life characters that seemed to be from another world. Mm. i become socially and geographically aware of the fact that they were from a very similar heritage to me, from just up the road. So that forced me to start looking into their lives and the stories a little bit more. Sure. Um, so I already knew quite a lot about them mm. at that point, and then it was actually it was Douglas Clark that brought professional wrestling uh, largely to the northern English audience back in the 1930s and that sort of tied in then that's why it became so synonymous over the decades and into the 50s and 60s yeah. once you'd got Billy Riley and ultimately Ted Bentley and Ted Bentley went on to train Dynamite Kid and Davy Boy um, so there were sort of this direct link between the two and uh, as I was doing all my research for into British professional wrestling for the Douglas Clark one mm. uh, that, that sort of close tie came in and I already knew so much about um, Dynamite and Davis' story and I was so uh, enamoured with it and the fact that they're from this similar heritage to me that when tying into what we were about earlier, when I got realised that I'd got a third opportunity to write another book and that there were a bit of that imposter syndrome that you're on about. Yeah, I, was yeah. like, I was like, the, the, the two before were like, I know, I was very confident that there were nobody in the UK who knew as much about the Chappaquensi yeah. uh, incident as me. I knew for, I was fairly certain that there were nobody alive that knew as much about Douglas Clark as me. Yeah. The Bulldogs were a complete, that, that's where I started to feel, I started to feel, can I do it, can I do it justice? Mm. Uh, and it's just, it snowballed uh, from where I originally wanted it to be. I wanted it to be just from the sort of the British point of view. Okay. It still, it still largely is. I wanted it to, because I think the stories, their stories are so much better now, and certainly in Canada, but also in the US. Mm. Um, there's sort of been a little bit forgotten about over here, I think, Dynamite yeah. especially, um, more than they Yeah, it's, it's a shame in a sense. I mean, I, it wasn't, just because I knew I was going to be speaking to you. I just happened across, I was catching up on Dark Side of the Ring. There, um, last week, there was a few episodes that I hadn't gone and seen. I swore blind I hadn't watched Dynamite Kids one, and it was one that I really wanted to see. But as I was watching it, I had already seen it, but I happily watched it again. It's a shame, in a way, that it's, it's things like that, that all we've got, or what most people these days have got, to learn about especially the dynamite story is from something like that which is obviously going to be get is 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 a sad story they both were but really it's the reminder of the tragedy of it um yeah well hopefully uh, your book will you know you've got a lot well, more in there to that's what i wanted to do i wanted to i didn't want to shy away from any of that the controversy mm. um but what i wanted to do more so than what any 44 minute documentary can do um I wanted to apply all that context, all, all the backstory, where it fell in the timeline, where they were in the careers, what physical and emotional pain they were going through. The more research I did, the more people that I spoke to. And I sort of started to tie it all together in my head. And mm. the bereavements that they were going through at the same time as they were on these ridiculous um, scheduling that yeah. the uh, WWF were putting them on at the time. Uh, the, the drug culture wasn't just... Uh, it's got this sort of really bad name for it now that the I think the perception is that there were just these pie animals that were going out mm. and just taking these drugs just cost the cord. Um, it wasn't the they were almost expected to do it because it was the only way that they could get up early enough to catch the flight to the next town, the only way that they could go to sleep uh yeah. early enough to get awake to be awake early enough. It was the only way that they could um sedate themselves from all the injuries from the nightly work it, it, it really wore this uh vicious cycle that they're all falling into um especially quite smaller guys like dynamite and davy yeah. with the pressure on them to be as big as the bigger guys you know that that brought with it a, a um acceptance that steroids was just what what was expected of them so uh yeah i want, I want to cover all that 
but I didn't want to concentrate and dwell on it too much. Like I think a lot of the the negative stuff has done. I wanted to apply all the context, all the backstory, and I wanted to also. I think something else that doesn't get mentioned is there were teenagers when when they left the yeah. mining town. The, the, the tiny mining town similar to what I from I'm from Featherstone originally you know uh, I hadn't even been I don't think I'd even been to Scotland at the age that they <laughs> went off to make a life for themselves in Canada yeah. so people sort of judge them for the mistakes but there were these young kids yeah who were going into a complete other world a complete another culture that they didn't know um and who did, who did they have looking out for them really in the, the well well that is where um that did get that especially dynamite especially went into sort of nothing almost and he mm. um he became closely linked with the art family to start we were running the um stampede wrestling promotion that he got signed up to they took him under his uh, under the wing a little bit but it was such a um sort of firebrand character such yeah. a um emotional character that he, he he found it hard to to make these bonds um until he finally did later on, but by then David David had come over, so that introduced David to that to the art family. And a few years later, they were both actually married into the yeah. family, and such a crucial part of that that dynasty, really. Yeah. And um, I mean, I had to do. I've actually done. I don't know if it's been done before. It probably has been somewhere somewhere on the internet. Somebody had done it, but um, I think mine all been the first time that it's actually been done, sort of in print in a proper publication. Uh, but I got inspired to do it just because. Even my brother, who's a huge wrestling fan, we, we, he's a writer as well, and we talk about each other's projects and stuff all the right. time. And I'd, be, I'd just be talking as I am now to you, and he'd be going, hang on a minute, which one's that again? Hang on a minute. Have hang you on done a, a family tree? I've done a family tree. That's I had to do it. I thought, I thought <laughs> the readers are going to need this, because I thought if my brother yeah. is unsure, as, yeah. as, as the readers reading, they're coming across these names, you know, there's Dean and Ellie and Jim. Yeah, you yeah. Know, oh, hang on a minute, was this so? So, yeah, somewhere about... A quarter way through a book, I've, I've put it in there as, as a family That's tree. And, and I'll tell you what, I had to limit myself as to how wide I went with it. It could have got more complicated because, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a it's, big it's, family, it's, isn't it? To start, oh, with. It, but it's not just the size of it, it's the uh, the interconnectivity like That's, Brett, yeah. Brett and Dynamite married sisters. Two sisters, uh, yeah. That's... So, yeah, so that could be another. I've, I've omitted that bit because I just didn't have, I'd have needed an A3, I'd have needed an A3 book to, to get it all up. <laughs> Yeah, that's brilliant. So, I mean, but we're going to try, you know, we'll talk about um, Davey and Dynamite, you know, their careers, the stories as we know them, and that sort of as much as we can. But I, I don't want, I don't want to spill too much from your book because I'm yeah. looking forward to reading it. Yeah, yeah. I got mine on order. Yeah. Um, let's talk about how you started to then put this together. So, the research involved, you obviously knew. Um, knew some of the story yourselves. Talk about the people that you you worked with, spoke to, you know, that were closest to them. To how how did you go about sort of putting the research together? Well, um, obviously, I'd, I'd, Brett's and Tom's book were my um, sort of first points of reference. They were my first sort of crucial points of reference, and uh, based on that, plus um, various documentaries, you know the um, Oh, uh, sorry, the other one that I got right from the kickoff was um, Martha Owen Hart's widow. She's uh, written yeah. a book about, about Owen, about his life and death. Uh, so that was a really good start because she references the whole sort of family history as well. And then sort of uh, Diana Hart had written a book, Bruce Hart had written a book. So I started to put all these together, created myself a sort of a bit of a timeline of everything that had gone off and uh, the sort of key points. And I just sort of really started to highlight key points that I wanted to wait and make sure that I've got the backstory fully in check for that. Um, and then Bruce was such a key part of that um, because he he's the eldest of the 12 art siblings and he was over wrestling in the UK in 1977 and he's the guy who discovered Dynamite. Um, Stampede Wrestling were completely failing at the time and the, he felt like they needed something fresh rather than just the sort of same old lumbering yeah. big heavyweights. And he saw the Dynamite Kid absolutely at, at 18 years old, tearing the roof off uh, off all the venues and the sort of smoky uh, town halls that they were wrestling in at the time and thought, right, this kid needs to be on a bigger stage. Mm. Um, it wasn't easy for him to get him over there, but he did eventually get him over there and um, Dynamite then took the place by storm. But then uh, Bruce were involved in 
various controversies, you know, the, his relationship with both Dynamite and David went up and down and controversy after, yeah. um, you know, sort of a real love-hate relationship he had with both of them. Um, so I really wanted to speak to Bruce, even though I'd got his book. Um, I, there were a few things that I just wanted to clarify with him and I just wanted to speak with. Um, so I reached out to him through um, a, an elderly gentleman now who sort of looked after their um, interests Back in the day, he's still, okay. yeah, I got in touch with him on social media. I said, look, can you put me in touch with Bruce? Uh, and he, he was kind enough to do so. Bruce is in his 70s himself now. Um, uh, not, don't seem very technologically savvy, as is no. no need to be at his age. Um, so it were a, a real old, you know, it was none of this. It was an old dial-up phone. I had to make wow. sure that I'd got um, no roaming charges and all that set up on me <laughs> on my phone or I'd got a, a bolt on for Canada. Um, and we spoke for about four hours. Wonderful guy, could not give me enough of his time. Oh. Um, I must have come across quite well, my knowledge of the subject. We started talking about, and that's where the Douglas Clark research came in because he was such a fascinating wrestling historian himself. Yeah. Um, that as we started talking and as chat went further and further back in time, I knew a lot of stuff that he knew about. We'd got shared um, knowledge of uh, real legends of British wrestling and so-and-so's yeah. name come up and we talk about them and uh, we just had this fantastic chat now um, that was as far as I'd gone with speaking to any more of the family members at that point I'd reached out to Bronwyn Tom's daughter yeah uh, I was still yet to hear back from uh, from a and out of the blue completely out of the blue Ross <laughs> um, got in touch with me and said I've been speaking to my brother, Bruce. Um, he's told me that you're going to write this book about the Bulldogs. Um, you came across really well. I'm not sure the exact words he used, but yeah. obviously I, I had come across well to Bruce so much so that it sort of recommended me as wow. you, might, you might want to get in touch. You might want to speak to this guy who's going to write a good book. Um, so Ross got in touch with me and that is that was the sort of key turning point in terms of it being a bigger and better book than I ever dreamt it were going to be because Ross has got this encyclopedic knowledge, not just of the art family, but of wrestling in general, not just of the Bulldogs. He's got a real good memory. And um, so again, I had a three or four hour chat with him, but we kept in touch and I, I, I kept referring back to him. Uh, I hope you don't mind me bothering you again, Ross, but <laughs> I'd just like to clarify this because as the case is with, you know, there's a hell of a lot of, stories between all the shoot interviews that are out there now um, and all the books, Diana's book, Brett's book, Bruce's book. There's an awful lot of contradictory information. Um, um, yeah. So I, I, I was keen to get the true side of the story and I'd built up this relationship with Ross where I knew I could trust him to, to sort of give me the, the honest answer as best he knew it. So I kept referring back to him, kept referring back to him. And every time he'd send me reams of information stuff you know going off on tangents oh that reminds me of this that reminds <laughs> me of this and I just got I ended up with more information than I ever dreamt I'd get um but we built up this brilliant relationship I started sending him chapters for him to proofread and he'd send me some feedback and um then he was that convinced that it was going to be good that he, he agreed to write me a, a good forward mm. and uh then out of the blue I got a message off Bronwyn. I've been speaking to my uncle Ross. Um, <laughs> you, almost, says, you needed Bruce with yeah. the conduit. Yeah. 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 Um, it started with Bruce and then went on to Ross and then on to, and um, so Bronwyn, oh, Ross has assured me that, you know, you, all your intentions are good and you're going to write a good, good book. Mm. Uh, so I'd like to contribute. And that again was so brilliant because Bronwyn, I mean, we've, we've turned into really good friends. Yeah. We're in touch certainly on a weekly basis. Um, she's contributed so much in terms of time, stories. She's written the afterword, which is so um, emotional. I'd, 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 I'd spoken to her about a story, particularly when she got reunited with her dad. Oh, yeah. And um, I just thought, well, the only part of the story that I thought, after hearing her say it, I thought, I don't want to rewrite that in my words. I would have to do everything else, but I thought nobody can do it as good as... Uh, so I asked her if she would actually write the afterword, including that story and whatever information she wanted. And she's, you know, really tugged on her heartstrings with it. And so she actually calls it an healing process herself for, for being able to write that. And 
she actually thanked me for the opportunity again with these humbling moments. Um, you know, you know, you've done well there before you've even released. That that's it. that the feedback from Ross. Um, well, it it already done one full edit of the book or one sort of full proofread and feedback when he wrote the foreword and one of his first parts of his foreword is that this is the um, most thorough and I'm not sure exact words he used but the sort of most thorough and most accurate version of the Bulldog story that's ever been done and um, Bronwyn's feedback was similar and yeah so it, it really to say I only started off I, I didn't anticipate it being 125,000 words and I didn't anticipate it um, having them level of contributions uh I, I was just sort of looking at it from a, a british wrestling fan's point of view do they what what does the typical british wrestling fan know and i want to sort of fill in them gaps and yeah. make them aware it just became a bigger and better project than i ever dreamt it would would be and um yeah i'm, I'm absolutely all at home with it do you think writing it from because because you mentioned martha um martha hart's book and, and some of the others that have been written from their perspective you know some of these stories do you think it's it's all i wouldn't say you know better or worse but you know easier in a sense to to write a story of this magnitude from a um from like a mutual point of view so it's not so you your emotions aren't pouring into it you are you're dealing with facts I, as good as you can get them absolutely think that and the reason that i think that the reason that i feel like i know that now is because so many people have written they've written about dynamite and david in their own books or in their own yeah. shoot interviews or, or in documentaries that spoke about them or and immediately it all gets challenged no that ain't what happened no that ain't what happened and there's all these um contradictory points of view mm. but every single time these contradictory points of view are, are done with that emotional standpoint of somebody's got almost a a bit more of a uh, an agenda, if you like, their yeah. own agenda or their own memories, or um, yeah. you know, putting a certain spin on it, or they're going off what somebody told them at a certain point, and then yeah. that story changed magically over time. There's all this. So I, I've I've put a little disclaimer at the front saying that you know the book is written purely based on um, other people's documented yeah. um, documented. Uh, anecdotes and versions of events and what I tried to do was bring them all together and thrash them out and decide hang on a minute then so that didn't happen that probably did happen and and just try and make a real functioning enjoyable dramatic narrative out of it yeah. uh, and I've referenced there every single um, source at the, back, <laughs> at the back just to again cover my own bases but I feel like and again I'm not I've, I've, I've had everything sort of fact-checked by Ross and people like that to the best of their knowledge. But there's yeah. no way of knowing that you've got everything right. I'm quite no. certain that there were things wrong in there. Um, but what I've done with a fine tooth comb is try to get to the bottom of all these sort of fabled stories where everybody knows, well, did that happen? Well, did that, you know, I mean, I, I'd like to think that if it's made it to the book. Yeah. Because there's things that I've taken out because I've then retrospectively decided that I probably didn't have enough evidence for that okay. or yeah. something contradicted it. I've, I've, te I've taken things out based on that. If it made it to the book, I truly believe it happened after the 18 years of wrestling, no pun intended, with, with the conscience of what should go in there and what shouldn't go in there. So I'd like to think that the fans can um, read it with some level of confidence that it's Brilliant. it's very accurate. Cool. That's that's one thing. Because I, I haven't... I must admit, it's a, it's a story... As Western fans, we all feel like we know, or we mm. know a certain degree of. Um, has it been done before? Has their story been told, you know, in a book uh, like this? Uh, certainly not in a book like this. Um, it's been, I, I, I would say, like, the books that I've already mentioned by three different art siblings um, all went into the story in different detail or different from a different point of view or but that that were their own books that dynamite and david were almost characters in if you like and yeah. uh, their story went along it's never been done um in a book in its own right and it's also never been done in documentary form um now 
Dynamite's had two documentaries, Dark Side of the Ring, and a High Spots one that got done okay. kind of 12 years ago. Um, David, funnily enough, has never had a, a proper documentary done, but there's don't two. That. Well, there's two in the works at the minute. Yeah, I don't, don't I understand. So I do understand it now, but that's okay. another story. I do. That, I do. That's cool. That's cool. Um, I think I understand why. Um, and so, like I said, there's two being signed off now. And I th- but I think that the the relationship between Dynamite and Davey ended up so splintered and so um, bitter uh, between the pair mm. that it needed to be somebody completely neutral who were going to tackle the story at the same time because yeah. it couldn't be done. It just it just couldn't be done. Um, they were only ever going to be a footnote in each other's story and you can tell it looking back and watching the documentaries and the books that have been done the, the sort of almost skirt around the subject of dynamite and davies relationship you know they went from tag team champions together apps cousins best friends um to never speak to each other again for yeah. the last 20 of their lives um kind of Relationship. That's, a, that's a tragedy in itself from a fan's point of view. I mean, I, I just said that over five seconds, but it actually went up and down and up and down. Yeah. The, the relationship was such a roller coaster. Yeah. And that's what I think people don't know and because it's never been done from that neutral point of view, looking at one side and the other and each other's point of view. You know, uh, for the first 10 years of the wrestling relationship that they had, um, it was Davey riding on dynamite's coattails mm. and then almost in the blink of an eye that switched around and yeah. um david became the the the, the star of the, yeah. of the partnership and that was something that i don't think tom ever fully came to terms with and um so from that point of view that that sort of that uh, an in-depth look into that relationship that i've done has, has certainly never been done before brilliant cool 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 so let's let's just step away kind of step away from the book itself into your own memories then because i i remember clear as day my first memories of the british bulldogs um quite an ironic one really because the first ever videotape i had of my own was survivor series 88 yep um that opening as it was on the uk release that opening 10 team match sorry that 10 team tag match was the opening one so that was the first thing i saw they would have been some of the first stars i saw go to the ring um it was their last match or pretty much their last match in the wwf and uh i believe they were the first team eliminated and I there's remember a, that i probably were yeah could well there's a specific reason why they were the first team eliminated um all makes sense all makes yeah. sense i suppose uh, read the book find out but yeah they were a very uh, almost quite a sinister reason why that they okay. were the first team eliminated or written to be the first team eliminated. Um, my first memory of, well, I'm guessing we're a similar age, um, but I obviously knew Davey just from my fandom in the early 90s. Mm. He just became part of pop culture, certainly from a British point of view. Yeah. He was a superhero figure yeah. going and fighting on behalf of Britain in another world, you know. Yeah. Um, so it just completely ingrained in me. Uh, and then when I came back and became a wrestling fan again at sort of 16, 17, Attitude Era time, David Wall, back in it then briefly, lowered out pecking order and everything, but he was there in his stony washed jeans. Um, and then, you know, like I would say about Freddie Mercury and Princess Diana, you always remember where you were when they died, when you heard that they, were, when you heard yeah. that they died. I will always remember where I was when I heard David Boy died. I was back into wrestling in a big way. He was the only one, him and, him and The Undertaker were the only two, I would say, that had transcended them two eras of fandom that, I wore, that I'd had. Um, yeah. You know, Brett, Brett had even retired by then, or certainly if he hadn't retired, he were in WCW. Yeah. Um, they were the only two, and he, he was just this always looks. By then, I sort of knew a bit about him being a local lad, if you like, and uh, it just seemed this, you know, larger than life, ultra fit character, and died of an heart attack, at you know, and all that just completely blew me away. And that was sort of the first time that I really thought I need to sort of have a look into him and his career and yeah. just genuinely interested as a, as a big fan. Mm. Um, but around that same time, in fact, it would have been before that, when we'd got, me and my brother got back into wrestling in such a big way, 
a friend of ours, I made the mistake of thinking they were too cool for wrestling, sort of in the mid nineties. <laughs> he'd stayed too cool back then. <laughs> he, he, he didn't feel. <laughs> my friend Pete didn't think he was. Uh, <laughs> he uh, he'd actually by time we were sort of 16, 17, he managed to curate himself this huge collection of merchandise, including VHSs. And right. um, me and my brother started bringing them home from his house by the carrier bag full <laughs> and, and working his way through them, a pay-per-view a night, starting with WrestleMania 1, a pay-per-view. Right. Uh, and worked his way through them. And then it was, so it had been probably WrestleMania 2, well, it would have been WrestleMania 2. Well, the first time that I saw um, the British Bulldogs even uh, then, up to my knowledge, it was it was just a British bulldog, and that was the first time I saw a British bulldog. And, uh, I remember thinking, not sort of putting the timeline fully together in my head. I thought, ah, oh, they've obviously just got some English wrestler. <laughs> you can be Davy's partner because he was the British bulldog in my eyes, and I, yes. it, were only, it yeah. were only when I read Mick's, Mick Foley's book. Um, and he starts talking about dynamite and refers in 1986 when he first had his. Uh, when he first came into personal contact, and it's an anecdote that he goes in depth in his book, mm. uh, he describes Dynamite Kid as pound for pound, the best wrestler in the world at that time, 1986. I'm thinking, oh, 1986, that's, that is the time of WrestleMania 2. And I was like, oh, God, what, what a disservice I was doing. <laughs> Dynamite Kid, I thought I thought it was just somebody that, they, oh, yeah, you can wrestle with Dave. You're British, you can yeah, do, you can yeah. do. Um, so that's when I started doing a little bit more research into Tom. So... And then, like I said, it'll been a matter of months or a year or two later when David died, started doing a bit more research into Davy, and that's where it all started coming. That's 20 years ago now. Um, all sort of started back then when I look at it. Um, so they, yeah, then we worked his way through all the uh, all the pay-per-views, all the way up and all the way through to catch up to where we currently were in like 2001. Um, watched every single one. So then obviously going through um, SummerSlam 92 being sort of the ultimate peak of Davy's career. But I mean, he had some amazing pay-per-view matches with, with Brett in particular. And so um I still had probably only seen, unfortunately, at that point, five or six uh matches of Tom's. Cause all, he's got all these hidden gems from Stampede and Japan that yeah. you know you have to go search on the internet to find. Um yeah. whereas Davy had all these sort of mainstream ones that were out on VHS. So uh that's that's a real reflection of how the careers and how their um, reputations ended up. Dynamite were this sort of cult underground hero that you had to go reading about in um, obscure books, obscure magazines. And you had to go, part of the yeah. appeal when you realize I did exactly yeah. the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Even though I saw them as the Bulldogs the first time, it never resonated because um, this was 91 I first got into it. So I was kind of backtracking over a few years. But it was, you know, when I majorly became aware of wrestling as a, as a current product was um, in 92. You know, he was over here. He was the man, wasn't he? You know, in, the, in you know, going into SummerSlam. So I, I exactly like you, I recognized him. And mm. it was only through those early tapes that I knew that Dynamite was even, you know, around. Um, but I was, I was going to ask, actually, what do you feel is the reason why? Davy is, you know, sadly the most recognisable of the two, and, and Dynamite became that kind of, not you know, the one that we always had to go back to find out why, why, why did his reputation not sort of come forward well, um, ahead of Davy? Well, there were a, there were timeline issues certainly that worked against him. 1986, um, November 1986, Dynamite. Had a, a serious, got a serious back injury. Um, he had, he was wrestling with so many back and knee injuries. Um, you know, he, will, he needed multiple operations at the time, but he was just surviving on um, getting by day to day using pain medication and various other substances just to get him through to the next town, to the next match. Um, and his back finally crumbled under him um, in a match in Canada in 1986. Uh, he never fully recovered from that. Now, obviously, wrestling more just at the start of its huge boom then. And mm -hmm. so the Dynamite Kid, at that point, David became the star. David became the guy for the Bulldogs who spent the most time in the ring. He was the guy who did all the big spots. And he looked a million dollars, as they yeah. say. Dynamite, at that point, unfortunately, did look like a supporting character mm -hmm. uh, to David. Going back for the previous 
seven, eight, nine years, it will completely the other way around. Yeah. Dynamite was regarded by the whole industry as the man, the mm-hmm. one, one of the best sort of two, three, four in the world, sought after everywhere, uh, had every promotion in the world clambering over themselves to offer him this big money. Um, but again, that came just at a time before the sort of big boom and the big pay-per-view era mm-hmm. uh, as it became. And then uh, is it did become um, miserable, I think would be the right word to use, about the way that his career had turned out. He had a, um, he had a real fighting attitude anyway. And uh, uh, again, it's not, it's not me that's made that word up, miserable. It's yeah. a word that gets used a lot. Um, he had this... Um, down, real down, depressed sort of attitude about him. And as time went on, he became more, a little bit, slightly bitter about his career and how it had all panned out and that Dave was a star and Brett would become the star. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, he didn't do himself any favours in that regard. He wanted to become, um, so he went off back to Japan, again, back sort of off the radar, uh, was still a huge star in Japan. Um, mm-hmm. he, he, he still is this day. They, they had, to do a 10 bell salute whenever one of the true, true heroes of um, Japanese wrestling die, and they had one for Dynamite when he died. And, uh, yeah, he'll, he'll be forever remembered as one of the uh, gaijin, they refer to them as the foreign wrestlers on Japanese soil, and mm-hmm. uh, he will always be regarded alongside sort of Bruiser Brody and Stan Hansen as an Andre the Giant as the ultimate gaijin. Uh, so he were happy to be sort of off the radar a little bit, and uh, that that suited him. Uh, yeah. He didn't really like that limelight, and then that went the other way around for Davey. He sort of was coming into his peak as that ultimate limelight were available, and that big money were available. And um, yeah, the WF juggernaut just went rolling yeah. on through. Uh, and he was a lot more, I think, as a as a person, he was a lot more suited to that limelight uh, where Dynamite didn't like it, shied away from it. Um, and he were always um, one step away from his next um, controversy, yeah. um, which which sort of didn't help. And so that's why um, I think that's probably why he's not in the WWE Hall of Fame like Davey is, you know, because uh, that that controversy has stuck with Dynamite. Right. You know, you could argue that, that, that you could argue that many many of the inductees into that Hall of Fame. I've got as much controversy. I was just about to say, yeah. including Davy himself. Davey, yeah. You know, Davey's last few years were, were mired in controversy, and um, but yeah. because they had such a, a lot of others had such a longevity at the top, where they'd got so many big matches um, on in that mainstream mm-hmm. for people to refer back to in people's immediate consciousness. Dynamite didn't have that for the for the casual fan. They had it for the hardcore fan, yeah, and yeah, I just yeah. I just think that that's why the the nature of life is that you know sort of mud sticks if you like, and yeah. people had got people started to associate more when they heard the name the Dynamite Kid. Your casual wrestling fan, your hardcore wrestling yeah. fan, didn't they? Just thought, oh wow, one of the best of all time. Yeah. Your casual wrestling fan thought, oh, that's the real controversial, miserable guy. Yeah. When you mention the British Bulldog, you think of SummerSlam '92. You think that you don't your brain doesn't automatically go to that last few years where, yeah. he, you know, you could argue we had as much controversy as Dynamite. So I think there's a lot of that, you know. I mean, who else? Yeah. You know, Steve Austin, Hulk Hogan, they've all got um, of course. a bit of controversy around the lives. And the thing because, is, it's... Because they had that major um, exposure. Yeah. It seems to whitewash it a little bit and Dynamite's never been given that whitewashing treatment, I don't think. No, that's it. I was going to say, you know, it, 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 it seems a very much a more open playing field these days. Yeah. You know, again, things like Dark Side of the Ring do make us more aware of what goes on um, behind the scenes and how it can affect these these guys as, as human beings. Um, everyone has their demons, whatever they are, and the guys who are being still being talked about as wrestling gods have have a slew of them that they have put before all of us now but they still get held in that highest regard so i'm hoping one day you know the the wwe hall of fame i think you know to me as a wrestling fan isn't as important i think you know what the wrestling fans remember is probably more important than having a plaque well um 
you're absolutely right. And when you look, I think as it, when it started off, it probably was, you know, it started, I think Andre the Giant was the first inductee. Yeah. It started wanting to be this um, Hall of Fame for the absolute, the guys who'd contributed so much. And you've got so many people in that WWE Hall of Fame who um, never actually wrestled in a WWE ring. I think yeah. that's what, I think that's what the kind of what they hide behind a little bit with Dynamite. I don't think they've come out and said it, but it seems to be the theory is that they can always say, well, he only wrestled in the WWE for a couple of years. Uh, WWF as it were mm. uh, but they've got guys in there who contributed an awful lot to the wrestling business even if they were just promoters or yeah. um, wrestled for completely different promotions their whole career Dynamite no, nobody contributed as much in terms of changing the business in ring and um, having that I don't think uh, physically I've seen anyone um, maybe maybe you know one or two others since one unfortunately doesn't get talked about these days, but very, very much in the same sort of physical style as, as dynamite. I don't think I've seen that many people put their body on the line like he did. No, and that, that's what I was just going to go back to there. I think more so certainly these days and probably has been for quite a long time uh, because the WWF Hall of Fame has become so much watered down with people who you're like, really? Um, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and that's why Davey's induction seems so much overdue when you look at other people that are in there. But um, I think Dave Meltzer's Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame is classed as being a little bit more legitimate, a little yeah. bit more um, even. And Dynamite went in that, I think it was in 1996, when he first retired, you know what I mean? He was one of the first ever ones in it. You know, and it, I think that adds a little bit of balance. Um, so, yeah, I think within the industry, it, it doesn't need to be in the... Hall of Fame. I've actually got a theory myself on why they never got offered it, and that's that. Um, I think Vince thought he might have told him where to go. If I'm honest, but right. uh, yeah. you know, I'm not saying he would have done. Um, but Vince did offer him to come back, and okay. it, it turned him down flat in no uncertain terms. It won't surprise me if Vince feared that. Pride. It, it might do the same with an induction uh, induction yeah. offer. That'd be embarrassing one itself. Maybe that's what it was. Oh, I like to think that. I like to think that. Um, seeing the T-shirt you're wearing, I, I need to ask, obviously, about Brett. I saw you put on social media recently yeah. that you did actually get to talk to the man himself. Brett, I will go on record. Um, anyone who has listened to Once Upon a Turnbuckle before, I do talk about two wrestlers who were my heroes during the 90s. The first one was Bret Hart. He was such a massive part of my childhood um, you know, spending any time talking to him would probably be amazing. What was that like for you? <laughs> yeah, it was unbelievably surreal. What happened was, again, it was Ross uh, had said, um, he'd said, do you want me to... Oh, so, sorry, going back a little bit further, Brett had um, already volunteered to me. I'd got in touch with him through Bronwyn to start with. Bronwyn uh, is his niece, once removed, if you like. But she... Is best friends with her cousin who is Brett's daughter, and so she she is uh, in sort of direct contact uh, with him. And I'd said to her, "Look, the rules are for them who don't know. Uh, I'm sure you do know, but uh, when you're referencing sources, books, and things, you can use sort of 300 words without any issues. Anything more than that, um, you should you should be getting permission." Yeah. Uh, I'd used I don't know a thousand, two thousand of Brett's whatever. I'd, I haven't used many quotes, but is a so so perfectly worded in his book coming from him as a source I, I thought right I really I really wanted to use them um so I put the word out through Bronwyn mm -hmm. sure enough uh she got back to me and said look Brett's Brett's now aware of your book he wishes you support um what he said is will you write a bit about the book a bit about yourself Put all the quotes that you want to use, you know, create like a bit of a, a letter or a document yeah. and send it to him. Um, and uh, he'll review it. And because he's been misquoted in the past, that's what you say. He's been oh, okay. so many times in the past, he wants to know what you want to use, why you want to use it. Uh, so again, wrote this document, sent it off to him in a matter of days, got back to me through Bronwyn saying, uh, and Bronwyn said, he wants the same thing, send in again, but he wants. Um, a line at the bottom for his signature and date because he's happy with it and he wants to formally sign it off to you. I thought, wow, amazing. Wow. So the next thing I got this document sent back with Brett Hart signed at bottom and date. So I thought, wow, that's it. I didn't really need or want anything more no. from him. Very busy man. I didn't feel like as much as I'd love to interview Brett. Yeah. I didn't, 
his book is, is 500 odd pages long. Yeah. I felt like he got all the information mm. as long as he stood by it now, which confirmed to me that he did mm. um, by signing this document. You know, if he'd have put, actually, I got that wrong at the time, ticket. he didn't yeah. put that. So I thought, well, I've got all the info that I want off him. I've got I've got his signature on a bit of paper. What more do I need? Uh, right. It will Ross towards the end. And uh, by that point, the book's going through. It said it in process. It's really too late to make any changes. He said, um, I've been talking to Brett. Uh, he was interested. Um, would you mind if I give him your contact information? No, of course not. What? Wake me up. So give him a, uh, he must have given him the email address. And um, weeks went by and I was talking to my brother. Again, my brother's, a, and, and by the way, going back to what you said, same for me. Um, Brett was my wrestling hero, hands down. I'm not just saying yeah. that now, absolute hands down. Um, and I think because of reading his book and doing so much research into everything that went off behind the scenes and all the stuff between him and Shawn Michaels, you know, yeah. um, it was just the real life baby face. It really was on, on everything. It seems like yeah. he, he got, it seemed to get itself embroiled in things just by being the good guy. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, it was, I think it was just the eternal real life baby face. Yeah. Um, and so my brother said to me, did you ever hear about from Brett? And I went, oh, no, no. So I'm not expecting to really, you know, it, it might have just been polite to Ross saying that it'd, it'd give me a, it'd, uh, get in touch. Yeah. And then uh, my brother said, why don't you check your spam? I said, I'm expecting, if it comes, it'll be on email. I said, check your spam. I said, nobody's, <laughs> nobody just sends, you know, not lands yeah. in spam these days, except stuff that should be in spam, surely. <laughs> but I did. And sure enough, there it was. Subject line, it man reaching out. I thought, <laughs> oh, <laughs> never no. I'll never forget it. It man reaching out. Uh, and sure enough, there, an email with his contact details. Feel free to give me a ring anytime you want. I'd like to hear from you first and about your project. And so um, I gave him a ring one evening. Uh, we spent 31 minutes on the phone. I know it was 31 minutes because I looked at the phone after and you're know, just surreal Brett it man. Yeah, I, yeah outgoing call um and so uh, when i said that to my wife she went i want your phone to me i went 31 minutes she went why don't you just say half an hour i said listen it, every it's minute an extra counts. minute <laughs> yeah if i say half an hour people think it were only 25 minutes <laughs> i don't know if i say 31 people know it was 31 uh but anyway um yeah you are supportive humble we start talking about um British wrestling and from his time over here. Um, so people that had come into my world through my research, he'd actually come across in real life and we started talking about these obscure characters again. It was just really nice and uh, it wished me all the luck uh, with the book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, and yeah, con- uh, really I, never thought, I never thought I could speak any earlier, Brett, but I still can't now. That's brilliant. Oh, yeah, what an extra thing to say, you know, on that this book has brought about you know, for you as a, as a wrestling fan, really, I think there's not, there's not much else that you can uh, try and try and attain that's bigger than that. Oh, that was the ultimate imposter syndrome, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, you, you earned it, mate. You earned it. Um, So just, just while we kind of, you know, we'll have to wrap it up in a minute, unfortunately. Um, Again, I don't want to spill too much of the book out there. I'm really, really looking forward to, to getting my copy. I will be, uh, I'll be reading it as soon as it lands. Uh, the release date is actually my birthday. All right. So, you know, all the better for me. Actually, um, it's gone back a week, but I'm not sure if you already knew that and you said that it's, it's April the 11th now. Yeah, that's my birthday, so that's cool. All right, that's all right, you didn't know that. It was originally April 4th, so it's gone back a week, oh, so yeah. okay. No, no, yeah, so, so it's an extra special you know, present for me. Excellent. Um, let's kind of, before I give you the floor to really, you know, give us give us the last sort of plug for the book, as it were, and where we can find you, memories, I need to ask. So your favourite, as a fan, I suppose, your favourite Dynamite memories and your favourite Davy Boy memories? Collectively or separate? Um, my favourite David Boy, my favourite David Boy match um, is from a wrestling point of view. It's him, um, Brett, but not at SummerSlam. Uh, they had a in your house pay per view main event in nineteen ninety five, December nineteen ninety five in your house. Um, amazing, amazing match. You know the the really roll back the years. Um, yeah. 
to the old Stampede days. The, the Brett writes about it in his book as well that they really they only, they felt that the only way that they could top the SummerSlam main event uh, was to really go back to the sort of hardcore gritty kind of matches that you used to have in Stampede okay. Wrestling. And once I'd done the research into that and what that was like. And then going back and watching that match again, you can see it so much. Uh, That's probably what yeah. I was missing, because I must admit, um, when I saw that match, it's still not one of my favourites, because I yeah. think it is it's a, it's a real step away from the classic they had at Wembley. And I loved the the you know the two good guys against each other and whatever. I I I didn't, as much as I, I thought it was a breath of fresh air, um, Davey as a heel, I didn't like as much. And I thought this match was almost too brutal for them. But actually hearing that, it's like, okay, this is this was the true kind of match that they'd had way before Wembley. Yeah, and mm. and again, I'd only re-watched that after knowing all that. I know, learned about That's Stampede cool. and um, a couple of matches that they had back then and what Brett writes in his book about that. that was the, he felt that that was the only way that they could compete with what they'd done at SummerSlam. And then when I went back and watched it, you can sort of see it happening mm. uh, there in front of you. And it, yeah. it sort of... That's it's cool. a really, really good. Um, but my favourite wrestling moment of Davey altogether is, um, again, it's got a lot to do with the fact that I've done so much research into the Hart family and Stampede and Calgary, and, and that is um, the In Your House Canadian Stampede um, pay-per-view when it was the Art Foundation against uh, Team USA, which of were course. led by Stone Cold at yeah, the time. Yeah. And the... the atmosphere for that I would give anything to be in that arena now I mean if the place is literally shaking the commentators are screaming to it the JR <laughs> it, it's, it's shaking the camera is shaking because the, the fans are just absolutely wild yeah and, um yeah you, you just can't really I watched uh, that recently I didn't appreciate yeah, it I didn't appreciate it at the time it's um, a once in a lifetime kind yeah. of um, atmosphere that I don't I don't think it been sort of replicated before or since if I'm honest in terms no, of that, no, that's cool. that oh, level of, sort of wild abandon of, mm. of, of fans yeah uh, Dynamite I think most people refer straight back to his uh, Tiger Mask yeah. matches um, and they're brilliant they're brilliant to watch um, just because I mean there's even I think if you just want sort of a short frame of reference in top quality if you have got WWE Network there's the one that they did for WWF, sorry, as it were at the time in 1982, um, they put sort of, it sounded like it's a seven or eight minute exhibition, if you like, that right. Vince had booked them to do. Um, but they sort of crammed the full repertoire into that seven or eight minutes and it's just, <laughs> Bless you. Um, it, it's just amazing. And you can see what's brilliant there. You see the fans, they're all sort of wandering around as though they're treating it as almost a bit of a, um, break in yeah. proceeding you know when you look at the rest of the card or all these big names on before and yeah. after i think so uh, who are these two little guys on who they don't really know by the one or two minute mark they're all open mouthed at what's going off at ring <laughs> by the by the fourth or fifth minute mark they've all got their head in their hands and screaming and cheering <laughs> and to see them just sort of take the this it's madison square garden see them just take oh, madison okay. square garden sort of by storm like that uh is brilliant but in terms of dynamite if you can even go back and watch his old world of sport um, yeah. when he was 17, 18, you, you've sort of never seen anything like it, the athleticism. Yeah. Uh, it's like watching a um, gold medal gymnast suddenly yes. transported into a real life yeah. legitimate fight because he looks so realistic in what he's doing at the same time as he's doing all the high flying moves. Yeah. Um, you can you can almost go and watch any dynamite match and you're guaranteed to be entertained. Uh, some of the stampede stuff that's on you can find on the internet. Mm. Um, him and Brett as youngsters against each other. Um, but to but yeah, if anything, down, it looks it looks bloody real when you go back. You know the the athleticism that you get these days. Personally, very choreographed, very very. Um, yeah. obvious that they're doing everything they can to keep each other safe. Slapping the leg. Yeah, that's it. Back then, obviously, they were keeping themselves and their opponents safe, but you fully believed, and a lot of the time it was, obviously, you know, that stuff hurts. Um, but I, I just think it's so much more... Well, Dynamite had the mentality. It was, it was that or nothing. It was, mm. it was realistic or it weren't doing it. You know, it yeah, was, yeah. And he didn't he didn't care about being hurt himself. He proved that time and time again. Yeah. Uh, but he also didn't care. If, he didn't really mind if he hurt his opponent. You know, if as long as, as long as the fans went home happy, that is what he writes in his book yeah. time and time again. 
there he prides himself on uh, that he doesn't believe any fan ever walked out of an arena on a Dynamite Kid show feeling shortchanged. You know that that one. Uh, that was his mantra. But yeah, if anybody's got network available to them and they've got seven or eight minutes spare, uh, you, you won't have many better things to do than going and watch that Dynamite Kid versus Tiger Mask match. There you go. And soon enough, people won't have anything better to do um, or, or no better thing to do than to buy your book. Um, so, you know, last couple of minutes, just let us know, uh, just, just let us know again where it's going to be available, where we can pre-order it, when it's out, where we can find you um, to find out more about you as a writer or the book itself. Uh, yeah, the book is available for pre-order on Amazon and other book outlets now, as are my two other books, if anybody's interested from what I've said about them. Um, all three, or the pre-order for Dynamite and Davy and the two are also available on my website, which is stephenbellwrites.com. Uh, signed copies available there, or signed copies available for pre-order of Dynamite and Davy. Uh, I've got a dedicated Twitter page for the book, uh, which is uh, Dynamite and Davy or at Bulldogs Book 123. I'll put some sort of sneak previews on there, some exclusive photos that I've got uh, given from family members. And yeah, just a bit of teasing stuff every few weeks. Um, so yeah, that, that gets, that, it, it's proven quite popular with people who sort of getting excited for the book, with a bit of a countdown to put these teasers on. Uh, I'm personally, at uh, Stephen Bell underscore 1985. Uh, if you want to follow me, you're more than welcome. Uh, um, all DMs are open and stuff. If you want to pre-order, if you want to chat to me about anything, the journey I've been on, more than welcome all that. Um, you can pre-order a book just by sending me a message, a signed one, personalised message in it, whatever you want. Uh, there's a mechanism there for it. Cool. Thank you very much. And thank you again, Stephen. This has been epic. Um, it's, as, it's as good as I was expecting it to be and more, you know, getting to talk to you. I, I cannot wait for the book. Um, I will obviously, I'll let you know what I think as soon as I've read it, as I'm sure a lot of people will. Um, but, yeah, I think you can tell I am I'm sort of at the stage now it's all submitted and I'm, uh, I'm so excited about it. I probably come across like that, a bit of a coiled spring when I start talking. <laughs> about it. Uh, yeah, I do feel like it's almost the culmination of all that writing journey I've been yeah. on. Uh, the culmination of that wrestling fandom and everything that started sort of 20 years ago. So, uh, yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. I really enjoyed it. No, thank you. And and for me, this is this is really quite a culmination. I, I put uh, Once Upon a Turnbuckle to bed last year. Um, and I think this, for me, you know, having you on to talk about, to talk about this, it really does in the most perfect way, does sort of bring both of my podcasts to, to a point where, you know, they, they almost meet in the middle and it's, it's been fantastic for me. So thank you. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. No, no worries. And uh, hopefully speak to you again, mate. Of course you will. <laughs>